And now, another episode of Radio Yesterday, brought to you by ChuckChat.com. As was his habit when the previous night's work had run almost to daylight, Bruce Wayne arose just past noon. After a short stint in the steam room, Bruce Wayne showered and shaved. He dressed rapidly, then descended to the living room where he found Alfred engrossed before the giant screen TV. The image was Hellgate Prison, an overhead shot from the network helicopter. The TV image shifted to a close-up of a stocky black man dressed in a dark blue suit. The knot of his red silk tie was pulled loose, and his white shirt was rumpled. His appearance was that of a man accustomed to command under stress, but remaining in control. As the camera pulled back, the viewer could see that the black man was surrounded by a horseshoe-shaped crowd of reporters, some brandishing microphones, others with pencils poised over pads. Look, uh, give me a break here, the warden bellowed. I'm going to tell you everything I'm authorized to release. I'm going to tell you once, understand? At approximately 0600 hours earlier this morning, we received a tip from an anonymous source of past proven reliability. Acting on the information, we began a search for an escape tunnel. At approximately 1115, the tunnel was discovered. No inmates were apprehended in the process of working on the tunnel. However... At a spot fairly near to the tunnel entrance, we did find the body of one Lester Tuxley, a recently admitted uh, inmate. Tuxley was stabbed to death. As of now, we have no suspects. Did Tuxley have any known enemies? One reporter shouted. I'm sure he did, the warden replied gravely. He was a child molester, a chronic recidivist with over 80 victims to his everlasting disgrace. Alfred hit the mute button on the remote control. A rather unexpected development, isn't it, Master Bruce? Bruce closed his eyes, the better to recapture the previous night's encounter with the middleman. He could still see the look in the master criminal's eyes, could still feel the heat of his palm right through the glass, and he remembered the middleman warning him that Tuxley would not be a problem. Maybe not. Not another word was exchanged between the two men for several hours. Then, as night descended on Wayne Manor, its owner descended to the Batcave. Alfred watched him go, his noble face expressionless. More hours passed. In his private suite of rooms, Alfred sat before a magnificent zebra wood desk, running his left hand gently over the inlaid top of black-veined dark green marble as his right hand cradled his jaw. His deep-set hazel eyes had that particular glaze produced by focus on the middle distance. With the exception of the gentle rhythmic movements of his left hand to an observer, he might have been cast in stone. Alfred came out of his trance-like state with a sudden snap of his eyes. He appeared exhausted but resolute, a man who had wrestled his conscience to an honorable draw, a man who found, as all truth-seekers do, that he must be his own standard of honor. Alfred stood up. He walked stiffly to where a cherrywood bookcase had been built into the wall. He grasped one of the lower shelves and thrust upwards with all his strength. For a long five seconds, nothing happened. Then, gradually, an empty section of the bookshelf rotated, revealing an extraordinary example of the cabinet-maker's art, a cribbage board of such intricate design that it appeared to have been fashioned by magicians. The board was actually a box, hinged so that the playing pegs could be carried within it. 
Alfred opened the hinged box and extracted a handful of playing pegs. Like the board itself, the pegs were ivory. Each was tipped with a perfect dot of color. Half were red, half were green. From inside a never-used liquor cabinet, Alfred took a velvet pad of royal purple. He laid the pad on the desktop, then placed the cribbage board on it. He then began to insert the playing pegs in what seemed a haphazard pattern, his hands moving with the confidence of a neurosurgeon. Finally, Alfred nodded as though confirming a long-held suspicion and inserted one more peg. As soon as the tiny peg locked in, a thin tray popped out of one end of the board. Inside the tray was a key. Alfred plucked the key from the tray and strode resolutely to his bedroom. There, he went to the head of his double bed. He pulled sharply on the left bedpost. The post broke at right angles, hinged in such a way that it was invisible to anything less than a microscope's inspection. Alfred looked at the lower part of the bedpost, located a keyhole with his fingertips, and inserted the key. As he turned the key, he pulled upwards, extracting a long metal cylinder. After restoring the bedpost to its original position, Alfred returned to his study. There, he opened the cylinder slowly and respectfully, his manner suggesting some sort of religious ceremony. A tightly rolled tube of papers slowly emerged. Even in that psycho-emotional borderland between alternate states of consciousness, the Batman possessed a sense of his surroundings so delicate that it could detect the slightest molecular shifts in the empty air. A motion sensor so refined, it exceeded the abilities of any device known to science. Even seated at his desk with his back to the elevator entrance to the back cave, he could feel the presence of another. Yet his psyche was unalarmed. It could only be Alfred. With an effort of will, the Batman turned his head, watching his old friend, his oldest friend, approach. Unable to speak, the unmasked face raised an eyebrow, asking, Why? Not why are you here, but why am I? Alfred had been non-verbally asked that same question many times over the years. In the past, he had been content to pat the Batman on the shoulder and assure him that someday all would be known to him. Such a gesture was not the hollow placation of an uninvolved parent dealing with a questioning child. It was a sacred promise from a friend who knew the truth, a true friend who would someday share that truth. It is time, is all Alfred said. The Batman came to his feet, the movement tentative, uncertain. I know you are in pain, Alfred said. It is time you know the cause, the root cause. Depression is no stranger to you, I know, and I know how these forays into child abuse investigation have troubled you so deeply. It has all come together as I knew it someday would. It is all connected, and you are the center. Without another word, he handed a thick sheaf of papers to the seated man. What is an investigator's journal? Alfred replied. I can see that, the seated figure said, his eyes flicking over the tiny, precise handwriting. But whose is it? Your mother's, Alfred said, his voice grave. It is time you knew, not just what she did, but what she was. I... Read it, Alfred interrupted gently. Read it all. I'll be right here. When you're finished, I'll answer any questions that you have. Hour after hour slipped by. He read as though each word was a multifaceted diamond, 
holding them up to the light one at a time, observing the refraction, the color, the depth, squeezing every drop from the precious link to his mother, a link that spanned the chasm between now and then. He read and reread the pages, careful to keep them in their original order as they were not numbered. He rubbed a corner of the paper between his fingertips, feeling the texture of his mother's life from the fibers. Finally, the seated figure put the pages down. His facial features relaxed, his eyes closed. Alfred watched the sleep trance, watched as he had watched the boy, the teenager, and the man, watched with the patience that had allowed him to wait almost thirty years for this single moment. When the seated figure opened his eyes, Alfred was waiting. Uh, can I... Uh... Uh, I'm all right, Alfred. The information was just too much. It uh, overamped my circuits, that's all. I understand, Master Bruce. Do you, my old friend? Can you tell me, then, is it all true? Without question. My mother. My mother was an investigative sociologist. She was. Have you read? No, I have not. Yet you know what they contain. Some of it. That was not the point, however. Your mother had entrusted me with her journals, and with that trust came a pledge, a pledge of honor. I was to place the journals in your hands, in your hands and no one else's, no matter what. Did you know what she was investigating when she died? Yes, I knew it quite well. It was the single topic that consumed your mother for many years. My mother... All these years I had no sense of her. Just memories, baking cookies, reading me stories. I thought she was a housewife. She was a housewife, Master Bruce. But that was never all she was. Alfred, these journals, they seem unbelievable to me. My mother was investigating an international ring of pedophiles. These organizational charts, look, it was a perfect pyramid. A typical organized crime monolith. See here, he said, reaching over to point his index finger at a meticulously drawn flow chart. This is how they produced the child pornography. My mother traced it all up from the roots. The procurers, the photographers, the developers, the printers, the distributors, everything. She used the classic follow-the-dollars investigative technique. That technique was hardly classic when your mother used it, Alfred said. In fact, I believe the technique is one of your mother's great contributions to the investigative profession. I never knew. Your mother did not want you to know, Master Bruce. She was in a situation of great personal danger. The targets of her investigation would stop at nothing to neutralize her. In fact, her disguise was similar to your own. As the public thinks of Bruce Wayne as a playboy, the same public thought of your mother as, as you put it, a housewife. But these papers, what she was doing, it seems so dangerous? Yes, the seated figure said. Very dangerous. Your mother knew the dangers, Master Bruce. She was a woman of great courage, and she would not be deterred from her mission. But if she knew who was responsible, she knew some of the people, Alfred told him. Your mother was the first to understand the organizational capabilities of child molesters and others who prey upon children. The world viewed such despicable creatures as isolated aberrations, 
your mother was the first to link child molestation with organized crime. You mean like narcotics or loan sharking, labor racketeering? No, Master Bruce. The pedophile syndicates were more concerned with their personal pleasures, Alfred said, his lips involuntarily curling at the idea. It apparently took quite a few of them to manufacture and distribute their filth. How did she? She did it all, Alfred interrupted. She interviewed the child victims. She placed ads in the underground newsletters. She made undercover purchases. She paid some of the offenders for their information. She had a network of her own, a network of like-minded people around the world. Just as the pedophiles had constructed their networks, your mother and her colleagues were tracking them. Where would she find the victims? Your mother always said that if you wanted to interview victims of child abuse, all you had to do was drive up to Belladonna Farms, the institution for juvenile delinquents. But, Master Bruce, all you have before you were your mother's investigative journals. Those are field notes, not operational theory. Your mother's thesis was that there is no biogenetic code for criminality. She always maintained that you cannot control who you are, but you have the ultimate decision-making power over what you are. I'm not certain that behavior is the truth, Alfred cut in. The ultimate truth. You are what you do. Children are born with different genetic allotments, from the color of their eyes to their intellectual capacity, but the rest is what they themselves contribute. The worst thing about the abuse of children is that it robs the victims of some of that capacity. Your mother also said that today's victim could be tomorrow's predator, unless we intervene properly. She was talking about children, Master Bruce. So my mother was a crime fighter, Alfred finished for him. A crime fighter with a secret identity. Silence descended over his last words, a heavy ink-black silence, darker than any midnight. The seated figure slumped. The sound of quiet sobbing entered the silence, the sobbing of a child robbed of his childhood. Alfred rose to his feet. He placed one hand on the shoulder of the man he had devoted his life to protect, and once again he waited. It was a long time before the child stopped crying, but when he did, it was a fully focused adult who took his place. The seated figure surged to his feet, oblivious to the contrast between the Batman costume and Bruce Wayne's blandly handsome face. He stalked over to the giant computer, his mouth set in a straight line. He ran page after page of his mother's journal through an optical disk scanner, watching as each page was converted to computer-readable type and simultaneously pulled into one of the giant machine's five-gigabyte parallel hard drives. Then he rapidly typed a series of commands. Martha Wayne Journal. Pull names. All. Sort. Search. Against. All records. One by one, the computer search-sorted matched each of the names mentioned in Martha Wayne's investigative journals. Without exception, all locate inquiries ended on variations of the same note. Deceased. Homicide. Gunshot. Missing. Presumed dead. Deceased. Suicide. Suspicious circumstances. Deceased. 
vehicular accident. Deceased natural causes. Deceased blunt instrument. Whereabouts unknown. Last information indicates residence in Udon Kai. Locate Udon Kai, Southeast Asia. Principal industry, Udon Kai. No age of consent for sexual intercourse. What kind of industry was that? His face a study in puzzlement. The man seated at the console typed the same question, changing the wording slightly in the hope that the computer could clarify its cryptic statement. What industry, Udon Kai? Sex. Open. Sex. Sex with children. Other industries? Related. Transportation. Procurement. Souvenirs. Define last. Sex with children. Photographed to customer specifications. The seated figure ran both hands through his thick black hair. Then he took a deep yoga breath, drawing the air down past his chest all the way to his groin. As he exhaled, he compressed his abdominal muscles, clearing his thoughts. Summary, all names. Number, 77. Deceased, 71. Missing, presumed dead, 3. Whereabouts unknown, 2. Whereabouts known, 1. Only three of them may be still alive. Only one of them for sure. All that work, all that exhaustive investigation. And now, what was... A sudden thought invaded, insistent and intrusive, demanding attention. Alfred, the man seated at the console, asked quietly, never doubting for a moment that his old friend would be in the room somewhere behind him. The computer doesn't cross-connect any of these names to organized crime. Even the one old man who's allegedly still alive. Do you think any of them knew? Knew what, Master Bruce? What my mother was doing. That she was on their trail. Oh, yes, Alfred said, a thin vein of sorrow in his voice. They knew quite well. Then the crime fighter turned back to the computer and slowly typed case number one. The computer screen instantly popped into life with all the information known about the killer who had gunned down his parents right before a child's terrorized eyes. The computer display was unnecessary. The horror was indelibly etched into the memory of the child, Bruce Wayne. Mother, Martha Wayne, deceased, homicide incident to armed robbery. Father, Thomas Wayne, M.D., deceased, Homicide incident to armed robbery. Murder weapon? Handgun. Never recovered. Perpetrator apprehended. No warrant. Deceased. Resisting arrest. Autopsy. Gunshot wounds. Seven hits. Nine millimeters. Suspect. Non-regulation ammunition. Not resolved. Name? Joe Chill. The computer screen provided nothing new. Nothing that the Batman had not long since memorized by heart. The permanently traumatized heart of a child whose parents vanished in the split second it takes a bullet to do its homicidal work. My mother, the Batman's head throbbed with pain as he fought for self-control. Follow it down, he commanded himself, his fingers flying over the keyboard. Connect known associates, none. The seated figure nodded. How many times had he asked the same question? Too many to count. Go on, Master Bruce. Alfred said. The Batman extended his hands, watched carefully until all trace of tremor was gone, then typed a new message to the computer. Inquiries. Case number one. Number 88. 
Breakdown by category. Gotham Police Department, 77. News Media, 31. Inquiries outside assignment. Media. Number, zero. Inquiries outside assignment. Police. Number, one. Identify. Lieutenant Alexander Horton, GPD, Commander, Sex Crimes Unit. Why would the head of the sex crimes unit be asking about the hunt for my parents' murderer? The Batman asked. Connect. Lieutenant Alexander Horton, Gotham Police Department. Two. Martha Wayne, Journal, Investigative Targets. Searching. Please wait. Lieutenant Alexander Horton, verified meetings with Barbara Jane Slocum. Number seven. Both men's eyes riveted on the screen. They had each been shocked to see a woman's name on the list of pedophiles being investigated. Seeing it again so soon ignited a recognition flash. Barbara Jane Slocum. Category, deceased, suicide. Open, suicide. The Batman's eyes skimmed the screen as information scrolled past. Place found, contents of note, autopsy, occupation. The list of data was endless. None of it appeared to be of value, but suddenly... Popping up as smooth and deadly as a moray eel. Investigating officer, Lieutenant Alexander Horton. Ignoring Alfred's involuntary gasp from somewhere behind his shoulder, the Batman typed, Bank records, Barbara Jane Slocum. Within seconds, the computer told a truth that had been hidden from human eyes for decades. Currency transfers from a bank in Udon Kai to Barbara Jane Slocum, ranging from twenty-five to one hundred thousand dollars, each transfer preceding a meeting between her and Lieutenant Horton. How brazen, Alfred muttered. Not so much, the Batman replied. All the transfers were done in the pre-computer age, and before banks had to report currency transactions of ten thousand or more like they have to do now. Perhaps the IRS, Master Wayne? Right, the Batman said, his attention turning back to the keyboard. For Barbara Jane Slocum, all the transactions had been reported, but not as income, as gifts from her uncle, one William X. Malady. William X. Malady, the one person the computer identified, is still alive. Alive and living in Udon Kai. As far as he had ever reported to the IRS, Lieutenant Horton's income had never exceeded his police paycheck. From there on, the trail markers were unmistakable. Horton had purchased himself a number of expensive toys years ago. A Cadillac Eldorado Buretz convertible, a 40-foot cabin cruiser, a condo on the ninth hole of a golf course in Florida, and his gambling losses averaged more per year than his entire police salary. Within weeks after each currency transfer to Slocum, some significant event had been recorded in Martha Wayne's journals. A raid on a kiddie porn factory which had been planned for months failed. The inhabitants had cleared out the night before. A witness prepared to testify against a pedophile ring had been thrown from the roof of a government building in downtown Gotham. Suitcases full of evidence against a child prostitution syndicate had disappeared from the police evidence locker. The last currency transfer and the biggest had been two weeks before an event which tipped the balance in favor of the child sex merchants, an event which had never been connected to the secret war ranging in the underground, the killing of Martha Wayne. The computer screen's paper-white glow filled the Batcave, but the man who sat before it saw only a red haze.
That evening, Deborah Kane trudged through the refuse scattered throughout an alley in the misery-splattered neighborhood known as the Bowery. She good-naturedly bemoaned her high heels, feeling much more comfortable in sneakers and jeans, but her job required a professional appearance. Her car was parked at the end of the alley, right next to a huge green dumpster. Deborah's high heels clicked against the alley's cobblestones. As she was reaching into her purse for the car keys, she suddenly heard another set of footsteps close behind her. She whirled to confront whoever was following her, car keys protruding through her closed fist. The man pulled up short, hands in the air. Don't shoot, he chuckled. What do you want? Deborah Kane asked, not a trace of fear in her voice. Why, uh, sweetheart, I don't want much. Just, uh, you, if you get my drift. Come on, then, Deborah challenged him, turning sideways, offering her opponent only a profile, shifting her weight to her back foot so she could push off powerfully when he attacked. Take it easy, sweetheart, the man said. No use rushing things. How about if you just, uh... The man's voice died in his throat as the fat man stepped forward from the shadows. Your partner is going to be late for your meeting. The man who had been stalking Deborah Kane whipped a length of bicycle chain from around his waist. With an explosion of breath to add strength to his thrust, he charged the Batman, swinging the chain with practiced skill. But the Batman flowed under the swinging chain as smoothly as water under a bridge. He came out of his crouch with an explosive sidekick, driving the would-be rapist into the alley wall with sufficient force to raise a small cloud of brick dust. The man crumpled to the ground, the chain falling from his unconscious fingers. Deborah Kane stood transfixed. Like every other resident of Gotham, she had heard the rumors of the legend who lives, as the Batman was called in the Oriental community. But hearing was not the same as experiencing. He didn't seem like a man at all, more like a powerful shadow, a force beyond the understanding of mere humans. Thank you, she said simply. But I could have... I don't think so, the Batman interrupted politely. If you look behind your car, you'll see this one's partner. The idea was to have you concentrate on him while his partner took you out from behind. Is he... He won't be doing anything for a while, the Batman assured her, and with some great difficulty for some time to come. Please wait here. A few seconds' work with the specialized restraints of his own invention, and the two men were immobilized. Even in the highly unlikely event that the two thugs regained consciousness before the police arrived, they wouldn't be going anywhere. The Batman activated his wrist communicator to open the private channel between him and the commissioner's office. Two attempted rapists, down and restrained, near the mouth of the alley between 48th and 49th Streets. If they fail to confess, contact Ms. Deborah Kane, Gotham CPS. Ms. Kane was the intended victim. One of them made a direct attempt and can be ID'd by Ms. Kane. The other was lurking behind her official vehicle. The vehicle has been disabled. You will find an ice pick in the right rear tire. It should have the lurker's fingerprints all over the handle. The vehicle will remain in place so that your forensics people can gather the evidence. The Batman closed the frequency before he could be questioned, his eyes on Deborah Kane. How will I, um... I would be honored to escort you out of here, the Night Rider said. It's uh, quite a distance from here to my apartment, too far to walk in these heels, and I can't see a cab stopping for... for you. I, I can just... That won't be necessary, the Batman replied, touching a transmitter on his utility belt. Deborah Kane opened her mouth to reply, but before a word could pass her lips, a vehicle slipped silently around the corner and headed toward them. The Batmobile eased to a stop right in front of Deborah Kane's apartment building. The canopy slid back as the Batman effortlessly vaulted out of his seat to the ground. 
He again extended a hand to Deborah and gently lifted her out of the vehicle. She stood on the sidewalk facing the masked man, a torrential stream of conflicting emotions raging through her. Did you just happen to be there tonight when that man tried to... No, the Batman answered. I wanted to talk to you about the work you do, about some work I need to do. Why me? I know you are a person of deep conviction and sincerity when it comes to your work, the crime fighter replied. My sources are not important. I know them to be as impeccable as if I had made the observations with my own eyes. Would you, um, like to come up? Deborah asked. Yes, the Batman replied, cutting her off. I would like to come up. There's just one small thing that would make it a bit easier. And what's that? Deborah Kane asked. Leave a window open, the Batman replied, leaping back into the Batmobile and pulling away with the canopy still in the open position. Deborah walked up the eight flights to her studio apartment. Inside, she carefully latched the door behind her before opening the single back window. Should I change my clothes? Deborah wondered to herself. Do I have time for a shower? She paced impatiently around the small apartment, trying to decide until the issue was settled by a black shape flowing through her back window. I hope my entrance didn't disturb you, the masked man said politely. The dividing line between his dark presence and the room's dim light was impossible to determine. Not at all, she replied, as though addressing someone who had unexpectedly telephoned. Can I get you something? I would appreciate a glass of water, the Batman answered. Deborah Kane opened the refrigerator and twisted the spigot on a plastic bottle of spring water, filling a blue glass nearly to the brim. She brought the glass over to the dark figure still standing in front of her back window. Thank you, he said, taking the glass from her hand. As their fingers touched, Deborah felt a crackle joint of electricity shoot up her arm. She quickly glanced up into the opaque, masked eyes, looking for... she didn't know what. The Batman's body seemed to shift with the fluidity of an ink blot, rearranging itself somewhere behind Deborah's sofa. Was that just the hint of a smile that flashed across his lips for a second? You said you wanted to uh, talk to me about something, Deborah asked. Is it true that there is no biogenetic code for criminality? He asked without further preliminaries, the need to understand the depth of his mother's contributions paramount in his mind. That is absolutely true, Deborah answered. The idea of the born criminal or the bad seed has been scientifically disproven for decades. That kind of nonsense is still spouted by people who are opposed to social programs. But why? The Batman interrupted. Why? Because if children can be born bad, why spend money on education or health care or public housing or child protective services? That's right, Deborah Kane responded, an undercurrent of anger in her clear professorial voice. If criminals are made, not born, isn't it true that abused children grow up to be criminals? That's not true, Deborah snapped, her academic tone vanishing as she responded to the challenge. Certainly, child abuse contributes to adult criminality, but it's not that simple. There are many other outcomes as well, from eating disorders to drug abuse to suicide. But let me finish, she interrupted firmly. There are so many adult negatives associated with child abuse that it would take a textbook to list them all. 
Child abuse can push two similarly maltreated children in entirely opposite directions. One incest victim becomes promiscuous in adulthood. Another never engages in sex again. But most victims don't become criminals. But if the abuse was serious enough, couldn't... What is serious to one person isn't necessarily so to another. You never hear anything about emotional abuse, but in some ways it is the most damaging of all. The only valid generalization about child abuse is that no generalization is valid. I understand, the Batman responded soberly. What confuses me is this. Every time I have questioned a serial killer, child abuse was in his background. So doesn't that mean... No, exclaimed Deborah, jumping to her feet. There is always a choice. If you excuse a serial killer because he was tortured as a child, you disrespect the thousands and thousands of other children who were treated even worse and yet never, never imitated their oppressor. Don't you dare do that in my house. I apologize, the masked man said quietly. I wasn't drawing conclusions, just asking for answers. I'm sorry if I gave you the wrong impression. I fight crime. That's what I do. At least, that's what I thought I was doing. Now I think what I'm doing is fighting criminals, and I think you, and people like you, are fighting crime. We are, Deborah Kane said. It's true, we're on the front lines. We see the monsters way before you do. And as best as we can, we try to intervene before it's too late. I know how truly important your work is. Thank you, Deborah replied. Many abused children refuse to imitate the oppressor when they become adults. And some go even further, don't they? Deborah nodded, not able to speak. You have my deepest respect, the Batman whispered. One warrior's respect for another. Deborah Kane closed her eyes. When she opened them, the Batman was gone. On the expressway, the Batmobile slipped through high-speed traffic like a fleeting memory, heading for Cambridge Mews, an exclusive suburb ten miles from the city. The crime fighter glanced at the video screen. The readout said, Alexander Horton, 7 Plebiscite Lane. Even seated, one could see that Alexander Horton still had the remnants of a physique which once intimidated street criminals by its mere presence. Standing almost six and a half feet and weighing nearly three hundred pounds, the man's tiny head exaggerated his body to almost comic book proportions. His small, close-set eyes were as flat and depthless as a lizard's, but his hands were busy. A busty blonde stood before him, dressed only in a bright red silk kimono. The man had one end of the kimono's belt in a huge hand. He was pulling on it with the gleeful expression of a child unwrapping a Christmas gift. "'You like your present?' He asked the blonde. Oh, you know I do, Alex, she squealed. It's beautiful, she said, her lacquered nails toying with the diamond choker around her slender neck. Well, how about letting me see it, then? He mock-snarled, still pulling at the kimono belt. Just give me a minute, I'll... The blonde's voice died in her throat as a pool of shadow in one corner of the living room materialized into the shape of a giant bat. The huge man came to his feet with a speed that belied his size. What the hell? The big man drew a pistol from his kidney holster, but dropped it unfired as the Batman stabbed a two-finger nerve block to the inside of his elbow. Unarmed but still dangerous, the big man launched his trademark left hook, 
the punch that had immobilized a whole generation of thugs. But the Batman slipped inside the punch and drove his gloved fist to the big man's heart, followed by a quick series of three-finger kites that climbed from the waist to the throat. The big man staggered back, desperately searching for a weapon. But the Batman's paralyzing heel strike to the sternum ended the unequal contest. The blonde's mouth was agape, but no sound came out. Her red kimono popped open, but she didn't notice, watching entranced as the Batman looped the flexible restraints around the big man's wrists and ankles. The blonde gasped as the masked man picked up his huge adversary in two hands and dumped him unceremoniously into the armchair he had so pleasurably occupied only minutes before. "'Please sit down,' the Batman told her, one gloved finger pointing to a chrome bar stool with a padded red seat. The stool was behind the restrained man in the easy chair. His words were polite, but clearly offered no alternative. The blonde sat stiffly on the stool, hastily pulling her kimono closed. "'What did you do to—' "'Nothing of consequence,' the Batman assured her. "'He'll be conscious in another minute or two. "'I am going to talk to this man,' the Batman said. "'He is going to answer my questions. "'Then I am going to leave. "'I'm sorry about this, but you must remain where you are until I'm finished. "'I give you my word that you will not be injured. "'Do you understand?' "'Yes,' the blonde said quietly. Approaching the seated man, the Batman touched a nerve cluster at the junction between the man's jaw and neck. Instantly, the tiny eyes popped open, and the big man surged in vain against the restraints. "'What do you want?' he snarled. "'I want some answers,' the Batman replied. "'And I want them tonight.' "'What if I—' "'I'm not here to bargain,' the masked man said. "'I'm going to ask you some questions.' You are going to answer those questions. And then you're out of here? The big man asked. Yes. Ask away, pal, the big man said, a ghastly smile slashing across his porcine face. Joe Chill, the Batman said quietly. Who paid you to kill him? Kill him? What the hell are you talking about? He was a wanted man, a murderer, for God's sake. I was trying to arrest him. He went for his gun. I didn't have a choice. He was hit with seven rounds from a nine-millimeter pistol, the Batman said. Yeah, that's right. Regulation all the way. No, it wasn't. The caliber was regulation, not the bullets. You used hollow points with mercury tips. Hey, a lot of cops use hot loads, pal. It's a war out there. I won't ask you again, the masked man said. I know about Barbara Jane Slocum. I know about you. If you don't tell me voluntarily, I have other things I could use. Wait, the big man said, his brain racing his survival instincts on full boil. All you want is the information? Yes, the Batman replied. And if I talk, it's uh, off the record, you swear? You have my word of honor. And if I was to implicate myself somehow, it, it wouldn't go anywhere. It won't leave this room, the Batman said. I'll give you five minutes, no more. Then you can start talking, or... I don't need no five minutes, the big man said, chuckling inwardly. I know your word is good. Hell, everyone knows that. Go ahead, ask me your questions. Why did you murder Joe Chill? It was a job, pal. A job I got paid to do, that's all. Who paid you? The Slocum bitch. Just like you figured. 
Why did Slocum want Chill murdered? He did a job for them, and the cops were closing in. They was afraid he'd turn yellow and give them up. Slowly now, the Batman said, his voice dropping a half octave. What was the job Chill did? It was a hit, the big man said. Went smooth as silk, too. All the cops thought it was a street mugging gone wrong, just like it was planned. Who was the target? Some nosy society bitch. Martha Wayne, I think her name was. She was getting in the way. The way of what? The Batman asked, outwardly winning the war for self-control that raged within him. Look, pal, you got any idea how much money there is in kitty porn? Well... Let me tell you, neither did I. There was a real sweet organization set up. It was so easy. I mean, look at the product. It's not like drugs. The more you step on cocaine, the weaker and weaker it gets, right? Well, with this kiddie porn stuff, you can make copies forever, understand? It was worth a fortune. And the beauty part is nobody knew about it, see? I mean, I was a cop, right? And I never heard of it. I mean, I heard of it, but just... Rumors like nothing big time. Go on, the Batman said quietly. At first, all they wanted was some tips. Uh, this uh, Martha Wayne, she was feeding information direct to headquarters. Where she got it, I don't know. That dame had some good sources, that was for sure. Anyway, all I had to do was let Barbara Jane know when a raid was coming down. That worked good for a while, but finally they said this Wayne Broad was going to be a problem forever. You understand what I mean? Oh, yes, the Batman replied. So the word went out. To hit her, I mean. This Joe Chill, he was supposed to be a real pro, and he pulled it off, I give him that. But after a while, he got scared. I don't know of what, he never said. He was spooking at shadows, like talking about ghosts and stuff like that. So I, I, I did him. He didn't suspect a thing. You killed Slocum, too? Yeah, had to do it. The top guy, the one who was calling all the shots, he said it was her or me. The top guy? Her uncle. Or anyway, that's what she called him. Malady, his name is, but he split a long time ago. I heard he went to Europe or something. You knew these people were raping children and taking pictures of it to sell? Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't do anything like that myself. I mean, I'm not into kids or anything. Far as I'm concerned, they're a bunch of perverts. Lieutenant Alexander Horton, the Batman said softly. Didn't that job, that rank, mean anything to you? Ah, oh, don't go all gooey on me, the big man sneered. I was for sale. So big deal. Hell, lots of people are for sale. Just like her, he said, tilting his head backward to indicate the blonde. You trying to say I'm the only bent cop you ever heard of? No, but you're the first that would help people rape children. You want anything else? No, I have enough. You promised... The Batman walked past the restrained man like he was a piece of furniture, addressing himself to the blonde. Here is the key for the restraints, he said. You can unlock them any time after I leave. The blonde sat rock still in the chair, not moving. Do you understand? 
the Batman asked. The blonde didn't move. Hey, you stupid bitch, pay attention, Horton snapped. You forget you're a whore or something? Get off your fat butt and let me out of these things. The blonde's eyes came into focus. She looked into the Batman's masked face and nodded. The Batman vanished as suddenly as he had appeared. The big man laughed. <laughs> all I need is a little time. Before he even starts tracking down all that stuff I told him, I'll be on the beach in Rio. Hey, Rhonda, what are you doing? Hey, I told you to get over here and cut me loose. The big man's head twisted on his thick neck, but he couldn't catch a glimpse of the blonde. Hey, where the hell did you go? He snapped angrily. Me? I'm right here, the blonde said quietly, stepping into view, holding the pistol she had recovered from the floor in one hand. You are the one who's going...